Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. And welcome to Panic with Friends. And here is Howard Lindzen. Here he is. There he is. How's life on the other side of the California-Arizona border? I uh, can't explain, Canute, how beautiful it's been here the last 10 days that I snuck away from Phoenix for a change of scenery. Mm-hmm. Well, you've been here, you know. So you kind of left your wife and children here with a broken pipe and you kind of did a, you pulled the Ted Cruz, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, that was, un, uh, that was uncalled for. You're going deep into the family stuff. <laughs> I am not in the doghouse, but the family understands. I had uh, I'd had enough of Love Island every night, and I'm I'm more interested in SPAC Island, and that's why we're here today. We're going to um, look at the way I took the subject away from my family to SPAC Island. You did well. You're good at it. So I'm I'm uh, in San Diego, hiding out for a little bit. I'll be back in a couple days. I've been busy, 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 but just change of scenery doesn't mind good. Through the guests that we have on the show today, I learned a lot in his partner, Ryan Gilbert. I learned a lot about SPACs over the last year and uh, inspired by everything I learned by uh, Daniel, who's on the show today, to set up our own SPAC. That's great. And, you know, our SPAC is now public and it's exciting to now go back and really talk to the the people that really have innovated in this space. And, and pretty much ground zero of the last couple of years is uh, Daniel Cohen, him and his, uh, as Canadians would say mom, but I think Americans would say mother, have been incredible innovators in the SPAC space, especially around fintech. And I wanted to chat with them today to really give you know, a ground level story of this phenomenon that is SPACs of the focus on fintech. They've been in an insurance and brokerage forever. They've launched multiple, I think it's over close to 10 SPACs, but we'll, we'll, we'll dive into the exact numbers and what they focus on and what people should be worried about and what the opportunities are. So uh, let's get uh, Daniel Cohen on the phone. You got it. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Howard, how are you? I'm good. I'm in San Diego. Are you in uh, Manhattan or outside Manhattan today? Today I am in Manhattan. So it's a very cold day here in Manhattan, 22 degrees, but very sunny outside. So uh, some ways lovely, some ways uh, ridiculously cold. <laughs> and I can't wait to get back to Florida. So this is a SPAC episode and I've been waiting. You know, we've chatted a little bit. I, I know uh, the Mishpucha a little bit, but do you remember the first time you heard the word and has SPACs always been an interesting thing for you? And just give a little background on, on, on Daniel and what you do in the firm. Yeah, I mean, the first time I must have heard the word was back in the 2000s. And it was an interesting uh, product uh, that was being done in the last go round. In fact, I had a brokerage firm that uh, was called at that time uh, Cohen and & Company. And uh, it continues on today. But uh, as some guys came to us and said, we really want to underwrite SPACs. And I learned about the product and I learned about, uh, and this is, this is a long time ago, back in the 2000s, probably 2008, 2009. 
saw that there was the possibility for people who could bring good companies to investors to do very well themselves and actually have the investors do very well. So these guys worked for me for a number of years, left, went to another bank, uh, and we became one of their first clients. So we have been involved in the product for as long as almost anybody else on Wall Street, uh, certainly uh, at the higher level of uh, SPACs. And we launched our first SPAC in 2015, which uh, was uh, quite an adventure. And uh, we're now uh, just uh, finished launching our 10th SPAC and are moving on to our 11th. So, Daniel, 10 SPACs, 2015 to today. What was the trigger point do you think that got people like me? I think it's a combination of interest rates, SoftBank uh, doing bad investing for a little while and dropping the ball, lack of IPOs. What is it that really accelerated this trend? Well, look, I, I think there's a couple of things, one of which was that, frankly, in 2015, we saw a lot of great companies and technology that were really growing. But uh, I'd say building relationships with many of those, it really wasn't until 2020 that they were really ready to take the step to be public. And so it's just like there are exciting companies that are changing the way the world operates. And those companies are ready to come onto the public markets, have public investors be available to everybody to invest in. Uh, and I think that's what the big change really is. It's really a time when there's the possibility for people to invest in a lot of companies that are either on the verge of being big revenue producers in the electric vehicle and battery space and other places like that, or just companies that are changing the way the payments are done or the way that insurance is done or the way that brokerage is done. I think the companies are just basically exciting. And, you know, we're not talking about your small cap growth company that might be very interesting but companies that really, you know, represent what's happening post-pandemic. So really, once we get to, you know, that, that leap forward that we've really seen over the last, uh, you know, year where services have changed, the way people interact has changed, the way that people invest has changed, the way that people buy insurance has changed, the way that, that people look at managing their everyday life has changed, all of that makes it a really exciting time for companies that, you know, really can go public today and can do it at, uh, you know, with the amount of capital that they really want to grow these companies to the next level. So that's what makes us really excited about today's environment. And I think, you know, that's what made you excited about the, today's environment, seeing companies like DraftKings, like Nikola, like others, some of them have been more successful uh, in their post despacking phases you know, go public. I think that's what's really exciting for us. And your focus is mostly insurance, correct? Look, I think insurance is an area that is going to change in so many different ways. Financial technology, just generally banks and insurance. My background is that I was a co-founder of the Bank Corp, which provides really the card services, the prepaid card services to lots of different companies all over the, the internet that are using electronic cards to access uh, Visa and MasterCard and change the way the payments is made. We've also been investing, you know, my company that I founded at the same time as the Bancorp Cohen & Company has been investing for the last uh, 
15 plus years in insurance companies. And we see unbelievable change there driven by both technology and by just the way that people are, I guess, really technology and the way that people are relating to the acquisition of, you know, basic services that sort of like people always had insurance. You weren't sure where it was, what it was, but you had an insurance agent. Today, it's a very different process. And you can have insurance that really suits you and is customized to you. And there's lots of ways that the whole insurance industry can provide you with better products. It's, it's hard to believe, but out of every dollar that you spend on insurance, 27 cents of it goes to it, the distribution of insurance. So before you even get any services from the insurance, you're really starting out with having spent 27 cents and you really deserve something for that 27 cents that you spent. You deserve better customized products that really address your risk and don't just put you into a group of other consumers and address somebody else's risk. So, so for us, that's why you know we, we've launched two series of SPACs or I've been involved as an officer of two series of SPACs, one of which is the one started off by FinTech Acquisition Corp. when we first acquired Card Connect, and we proved that you could buy technology companies into SPACs. And the second one of which uh, is the Insurance Acquisition Corporation series of SPACs, where the, the two deals that we announced in uh, Insurance 1 and Insurance 2 was uh, Shift Automotive, and secondarily, or the second one was uh, Metromile, both of them involving cars, both of them involving financing and insurance in different ways. Uh, but, uh, you know, Metro Mile really revolutionizes the way that consumers can access car insurance and pay by the mile based on their own risk and, you know, really save a lot of money at the same time as having even better services. For those of us who don't get into accidents every day, I think the last accident I got into was 35 years ago. So uh, those of us that don't get into accidents every day, we can save a lot of money, especially like me, if we don't drive that much. And it's really surprising because uh, if you look at insurance for cars, they're assuming that the average driver is driving 15,000 miles a year. And that's what they're charging you for. And if you drive less than that, you know, Metro Mile, and, and there are a number of other programs as well, but Metro Mile primarily really can help you save money. And do you consider it an acquisition or a merger? Because I'm hearing both. Well, it's really, well, I mean, they call it M&A. So I guess it's really a merger where, mm -hmm. uh, look, we're looking for great management teams. I'm lucky enough, as, as you know, to work with my mom. I mean, who gets a chance like that? Uh, and Betsy and I have co-founded the Bancorp and co-founded the whole entire fintech series of SPACs. And... You know, over the years, we've been involved in running different public companies. And what we've, what we've found out and what we learned from a lot of the, what we find to be the most sophisticated investors and the ones that struck us having the most, uh, the best viewpoints on how to invest in companies uh, really focused heavily on the management. So we're looking for companies that can be led by world-class managers who are entrepreneurs who have an entrepreneurial spirit to build something great uh, and give them the opportunity to have the capital that they need and the backing that they need from us and from our co-investors 
in order to launch a company that we think can really grow over a good number of years. And why do you think, I mean, the media is the media. Why do you think no one's really doing a good job? Is it the media's job to just dismiss? And and why do you think they won't dive deep and explain it? Is that the opportunity or do you care? Uh, I, I think the media is, you know, is starting to explain a number of things. I think, you know, they're trying to sell papers in the end. So they take an opinion. This is good for you. That's not good for you. You know, it's our job to go out there and really uh, get people to understand, you know, while there's an enormous number of risk in investing in anything, there are, you know, we're experiencing a transformation of the world in so many different ways. The opportunities are really great. And it's not going to be a straight line, but the concepts that really work and have the opportunity to work in over the next 15 years, you know, those are going to be great opportunities to have companies, you know, that cash flow heavily. I mean, our our predilection uh, and our focus has always been companies that are generating revenue today. So that's just what we know. We know how management can take revenue today and make it into a lot of net income in five to 10 years. Uh, We're not as good at identifying companies that have the best ideas and will be generating, you know, huge amount of revenues out of them five to 10 years from now. But, you know, both, uh, you know, both the progressive uh, changes that have already started and the revolutionary changes that we have in front of us are, are, you know, exciting. And I think giving people the opportunity to invest in the public markets and to buy alongside and say, look, I'm going to back this SPAC management team so that I can participate in the upside when they have the kind of ideas that I really like. That's something that I think people should do. You know, of course, everybody should do everything cautiously. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. I mean, the insurance part, I've never been an insurance person, but the math, if you look at Warren Buffett or Berkshire Hathaway and and permanent capital, it makes complete sense. And it seems like the 27 cents that you mentioned, you know, if you if you watch a football game or you watch uh, primetime television, you see nothing but insurance ads from Geico. So you know where the money's being spent. I was always surprised that Google just if they were going to get into one side business, I always thought insurance. I don't maybe they don't want to bite the advertising hand that feeds them. But I thought, man, those margins are Google's in the end. You know, the first thing I would search for is term insurance. Why isn't Google offering that themselves? Do you think we get there eventually? Or like, obviously, based on your SPAC success in the insurance, you don't think so? Or do you think it gets there? Because it just would make perfect sense to a millennial to just search it. We trust Google and get it done. Yeah, I think, well, look, Google is monetizing an enormous amount based on people searching for insurance. So when people are looking for insurance, that's one of the key words that prices the highest uh, in terms of advertised search. So you have people paying Google already for a lot of that upfront insurance dollar. As the advertising grows and continues to exceed what you see on you know, Super Bowl ads or anything else like that, the insurance dollar really, you know, is driving a lot of internet traffic. And the importance for that is if you think about it, like you're going out and you're buying something that's pretty much a commodity product today. And it's not like customized to what you want, but it's just like, okay, I need to insure my house. I need to insure my car. 
I need to, you know, get insurance for my apartment that I'm renting. Uh, whatever the insurance happens to be, you you're gonna, when you need to buy it, you're like, oh, I should go to Geico. So keeping at the top of your mind has always been the point in consumer insurance. But you know that can really change if you're really able to search for the opportunities that allow you to be insured in a different way. Like, you know, uh, it's not just if, if you have a certain house and the technology allows the insurance company to differentiate between the risks in your house and the risks in somebody else's house based on even in Florida, you can differentiate it based on just if Florida is a pretty flat state. But if you're four feet above sea level versus seven to eight feet above sea level, there's a big difference in the risk that the insurance company is taking. And if you can monetize being seven feet above sea level and make sure that your house is like this, it has this sort of a garage, it has this sort of a uh, driveway or whatever, whatever it might be, and take advantage of a lower cost of home insurance, that's a tremendous plus for you. And so whether it's the Metro Miles or what you can buy via Lemonade and insure your risk differently, I think that you know there's a core service provided by insurance companies that are really customizing you know, what you're doing and customizing things to your risks and not just throwing you into one big group. And that's the big change that's happening today. So I don't think Google really wants to provide the insurance. They don't want to say, okay, I'll take in X dollars and pay out Y dollars. They're making enough money from advertising the various insurance companies. So when I say X dollars, it means you pay $50 a month, let's say, but your group will get back, you know, 48 of those dollars or maybe 37 of those dollars, depending on the type of insurance. But the opportunity that we have with big data and with Internet of Things and with all the other technologies that are being implemented to reduce the cost of your insurance while at the same time giving you the same peace of mind, the only thing we're eliminating is the insurance agent who has less and less work to do. But that's being moved, you know, in many companies that's being moved to Experts who aren't traveling to people's houses and building relationships at, I guess, Lions Club dinners and Kiwanis Club dinners or just being in your neighborhood, but rather people who really have the expertise and can consult you on what you need. Everything from if you're a senior turning 65 and you really have to decide, do I want to be on the standard Medicare Part A or Medicare Part B? or Part C or Part D, the Medicare Advantage plans, do I need a supplement, right? There are you know, people who can really help you do that. Medicare is probably the best example of it because you can get what you want typically and better plans just by asking for it and the government will still pay for it. Again, I'm fascinated by this because I'm not an insurance person. Uh by how deep the insurance possibilities are and how big the income, people don't understand the size of this industry and the reinsurance industry. So what insurance do you recommend for a millennial today? What should a millennial do? And we'll get back to SPACs, but what should a millennial do? I mean, you probably have a couple millennials. So what do they do? Well, I mean, each person's different. Are you renting? Are you buying? Do you need a health insurance policy that you don't want a big deductible? Are you, you know, getting that from your employer? I mean, there are, if we look at it, 
I'm a big proponent of pay by the mile. I just switched over. I mean, it was one of those things that when we started building our relationship with Metro Mile, which is founded by a visionary chairman, David Friedberg, and is run by a fantastic data scientist, Dan Preston. I, yeah, the, uh, the opportunity that I saw of just becoming a customer, the only problem I had was that uh, my cars, I could only, I do have cars in Florida and uh, in California, only the California ones could move over to Metro Mile. But the amount of money that I'm going to save, I, I was shocked. I mean, it's really, literally uh, at least hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars. So if you're a millennial and you're living in a city and you're taking Ubers in a normal world, let's say, not today, and you have a car for whatever reason, Metro Mile is great insurance, but there's lots of other, you know, great opportunities that you have, you know, buying renter's insurance, that's a huge opportunity for you where you can, you know, have more peace of mind that your goods are insured. Uh, and, you know, there, there's just, we're at the beginning of an insured tech revolution. Uh, so, you know, a lot of things that you insure, if you're, you know, a, I mean, how do we define millennials? I guess they're people, uh, just maybe buying their house, thinking about, you know, death, maybe they had a kid is term the right insurance for life insurance, or do you believe in that? Or is it a whole life? That's the one I kind of was leaning toward the Metro miles genius. And I think Chamath did the pipe with you or is involved with that because David Freeberg is a good friend of his. Yeah, David is a great friend of uh, Jamath, and Jamath is a visionary and can see the way that these things are changing, and he has a lot of knowledge of what's changing the insurance space. But, you know, if, so if you're a millennial and you're buying insurance, the opportunity is that you're not going to get cheated by the insurance companies today in a lot of ways. But, you know, frankly, historically, the term life insurance has been a very good option for people because it's basically just you know, and I'm not an insurance expert. I'm an insurance expert in the terms of knowing about insurance companies, but knowing about what any individual should, you know, buy in terms of insurance, I just don't know. Uh, my grandfather always said to my father, why would you want to trust if you buy a whole life policy? You're basically trusting the insurance company, an insurance company executive to manage your money. Why would you possibly want to do that? You're going to get ripped off. So, that, that's been ingrained in me from my grandfather that I only want to buy term life insurance. Me too. Jewish grandparents. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of the insurance companies have better managers, more interesting managers for the capital. Uh, but still, I, I'd rather trust myself than, uh, than trust an insurance company to manage that money. Now, back to SPACs. Now, I want to talk about your mom a little bit too, working with your mom. So on the SPAC side, what's changed the most? With, in, a, in a COVID world... I, I joke that, you know, having done a, a SPAC myself and seeing the results and seeing the enthusiasm and seeing how investors, large investors and hedge funds and money managers really understand the opportunity here, I was blown away because I didn't, you know, Ryan, your partner, Ryan told me and, and Betsy told me, no problem, Howard, you'll do well. But this this Zoom phenomenon as it relates to raising capital, will that persist? I believe it'll persist now forever and people don't understand the efficiencies there. Do you look forward to going back on a roadshow? How important do you think the roadshow is to do in person versus Zoom now having done it both? Yeah, I, I got to say that I think that, um, look, I mean, one of the problems with the Zoom roadshow is sort of freezes people in terms of, you know, generally their status. It doesn't give a lot 
of social mobility or the opportunity necessarily for as many new people to get involved in things as otherwise would be the case. And I do think that eventually people will go back to the traditional roadshow because somebody else will do it. So if you're not willing to go to see somebody who's ready to invest $50 million, $100 million in what you're doing, and somebody else's, odds are you're going to be that much further behind. It's a godsend of being able to meet people via Zoom. And I think that we've all gotten used to evaluating business opportunities over the internet and video. But you know, I do think there will be a role for flying out and seeing companies and meeting management teams and going to dinner with them, you know, again, one more time. And, you know, I, I think that'll come back to a certain extent. Now, one of the things that, you know, we all know is that if you were going to have a video call with somebody three years ago, it was a whole to do, especially if the person was in their, you know, 50s or 60s or 70s. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd have the tech person in the office come in and set it up. It would, you know, it's like a three-person event to get a video call going. Is the microphone on? Nobody could make a video call from their computer today. Obviously, that's all changed. You know, every five-year-old knows how to make a video call, and every seventy-five-year-old knows how to join a Zoom conference. And so, you know, I think that's changed fundamentally. And that's going to make finance somewhat more efficient. I hope so, because, you know, I appreciate not having to travel. I mean, we used to actually travel on SPAC roadshows. You guys should know that Canadians for a long time were extremely important uh, buyers in the SPAC market. And of course, they still are. Uh, And the long-term relationships that we built in 2015, 16, 17, 18 with some of the big Canadian investors and some of the funds that are run out of Toronto are priceless to us. But, you know, on the other hand, to get to Toronto in the middle of winter, sometimes when there's snow and it's always terribly cold and probably as an American, I'm not as used to it as I should be. That was always, you know, quite a schlep. And the opportunity not to go to Toronto and not to risk having my plane delayed and not to risk, uh, you know, having to stay overnight after having uh, six meetings where I'm driving around the city that's a big plus. Yes. I was born in Toronto and I joke about SPACs. You got one at birth and it went to zero and you had your first write-off. So what is it about Canada, the most freaking conservative people? What was it that, you know, I, I grew up in Toronto. I knew what SPACs were. It was like fire to me. If you said the word SPAC when I was in college, I ran. And in my post-investing world, running a hedge fund, I mean, what was the thing that that made it a thing. And why Canada? Why was it Canada? Because you know the most. Yeah, I, I, I'd have to say, remember in SPACs, I mean, there are a couple of things. In SPACs, uh, you get 100% of your money back, or at least the latest version of SPACs. So that's a big plus. You know, if you're making an acquisition and you don't like it, you can get your money back. So that's inherently conservative in some ways. I think what I found is that the Canadian... Uh, markets are more geared towards mining and minerals, typically, and so and real estate. So those those three things, I would say, are the kind of things that you put together a pool of capital, and then you identify whether this is you know a good asset, whether the oil and gas asset that you're buying is cheap enough, and 
frankly, I mean, there's a lot of people who've made a fortune in Canadian mining and minerals. A lot of people have lost the fortune. In, in, most people have done both, I think, in Canada. So the, uh, you know, so I, so I think those structures and those industries are why it started in Canada. In the United States, when we were doing our first spec in financial technology, People liked us. So they said, look, you have a good track record of having done lots of different stuff. You know this area very well. But, you know, we've only seen, you know, SPACs really work for energy, for oil and gas and other assets, or for really old line industrial companies. So, you know, why is it that you think uh, you can do this? But we'll give you a shot. Maybe, uh, you know, you'll lose the amount of money that you put at risk and we'll get our 100% back plus interest. So we'll see what happens. Uh, and the world started changing there. And, and even when we did it, there were lots of very good institutional investors who put bad companies into SPACs. Some of them went to zero. And so, you know, some of them are at $2. So like any investing, there's a lot of risk. But I think that the opportunity that you have today to participate in creating capital for new companies in new industries that are really following on all the revolutions we've had over the last 20 years and seeing you know, the fundamental changes in consumer behaviors that we've had that affects finance, that affects insurance, that affects, you know, frankly, the way people relate to each other and meet each other. To be able to do that is a good opportunity for investors. And for us, you know, we're just fortunate enough that we have the opportunity to, to help provide people with, uh, with these opportunities. In music, they had the Jackson 5. You guys are like two SPACs, what the Jackson 5 was to music. It's like three generations. Obviously, I think it's an elegant, spectacular product, much like Swipe Right is to Tinder. SPACs are to finance in a world of the cloud and the world of the internet and mobility. Why is it such a family thing? I think it's fun. I mean, once you start doing it, I have to tell you that, you know, Back in even my uh, my son Sajid, so I have six kids. The youngest of them don't really you know follow the whole entire SPAC market. Lately, the eighteen year old uh, actually she's seventeen. She would kill me if I said that she was eighteen already. The seventeen year old uh, she she tells me that she's fa- she's found SPAC TikToks to show up on her uh, feed. My thirteen year old, you know, when we started this, he was uh, less than ten years old. It was uh, it was fun. We were able to, you know, frankly, as a SPAC sponsor, it's a high adrenaline situation. It's not just, I mean, you've had the experience like you've gone out and you've raised a SPAC in a marketplace that was relatively good or, or even yeah. excellent. And the, the capital was just flowing. Yeah, it was easy. But, you know, the old school SPACs were much more difficult right? You had a lot more hurdles. You know, A, when you went out and you raised the capital, it was really a slog to get people to give you money, even though they got back, you know, exactly as much money as they put in. Plus, they got back interest. And then on top of that, they got, you know, up to a warrant in the in the company. So yeah. that was a slog. But doing it was exciting. And the challenge of doing it and then finding a company that was fundamentally a good company, the first company that we took public through a SPAC was called Car Connect. It's a great company, or it was a great company. It's part of uh, First Data now. And within a year of us uh, acquiring it, First Data bought it 
so that if you had put $10 into a SPAC unit a year after the acquisition, you would have gotten $19 back, right? It, it was a great company, but getting that deal done and convincing investors that this was a solid company and putting our own money up and making money on the actual uptick in the value of the company, all of that was you know, a high adrenaline activity. The market will change. And you know, frankly, being a SPAC sponsor can be both exciting and can be emotionally uh, draining, right? Imagine, Howard, you could get a deal that you really love, a company that you think is a fantastic company. And because of whatever it is, Right. And in today's market, it doesn't seem like this is going to be the case because everybody's just buy, buy, buy. But when you find your company and you organize everything and you get it all right and you're out to go out to institutional investors to do your pipe, people may not want to buy it. Correct. Right. It's devastating. And then convincing people that don't want to buy it to actually buy it and then actually being successful in showing them that that was the right thing to do. It's actually a lot of fun in really pushing it forward. We've invested in companies that have gone public through SPACs. We've uh, invested in all of our own companies. It's been an, an exhilarating adventure that I've shared with my mom, who's my partner, and my son, who's my partner in other stuff. It's fantastic. I, I can't believe, you know, as an entrepreneur myself, you know, hitting 55 years old, I love investing. I love angel investing. I love the market. It just feels so entrepreneurial, but I haven't had the the downside yet. And that's, I appreciate you talking about that. There is going to be a point where I fall in love with something and my shareholders will vote against it. I don't have to pick myself up the, off the ground and regroup and find another company, no matter how much I try and control. And I, otherwise I lose my risk capital. So I don't think people really understand. And that's why I'm glad you explained it. This is not free money. And if it is free money for the moment, it won't last because, you know, the markets change. Interest rates will change. Supply and demand will change. But that was a great take. I appreciate it. I want to end with Betsy. So I can't get my mom to do Zoom. So maybe I'm in the minority. I can't get my mom to read my blog or care what the hell I'm doing. I don't think it means she doesn't love me, but I could never go into business with my family. What was it something that uh, was you were curious about? Your mom's an entrepreneur. I mean, she's 80 years old now, correct? Yeah, she was 79. Don't give her an extra year oh, yet. <laughs> don't tell her I said that. We won't show her the link yeah. to this. So, she, edit this, Canute. So 79. she's 79. Uh, and she's more alert than me. That may be not saying much because I'm not alert. But how the hell does she do it? And how do you manage all that energy with your own energy? What's it like? I mean, the first thing I'd say is that, you know, you have to understand my grandfather retired from being a doctor at 85 and he only retired because he thought, look, his patient's health was in his hands. And it was already the beginning of the 2000s, an era of really uh, technologically based medicine. It was impossible for him to keep up with all of the literature. So it was, he could diagnose anything uh, over the telephone even, but it wasn't fair to the patient's. He was still sharp, uh, you know, for another 10 years. Uh, now, my mother is, that's my mother's father, and she follows in the same footsteps. Uh, when, you know, when the opportunity arose to be involved in the SPAC space, she jumped at it. And frankly, the two things that she loves more than anything, I mean, she's, you know, because uh, we deal with some international companies, so some of these Zooms happen at like 5 a.m., 4.30 a.m. in the morning, 
the thing that she loves the most is both being involved in the conference calls at 4.30 a.m. and also complaining about how she's involved in the conference calls at 4.30 a.m. <laughs> but I point out to her, this is the best of both worlds. For me, having a partner that, you know, actually, like, my mom loves me more than life itself. Where are you going to find another partner like that, right? That's the best partner to have. And we, we have a mutual respect because I didn't start off working for her. It really wasn't until I had launched my own companies that we started in business together. And uh, my respect for her is uh, limitless. She is able to come up with fantastic ideas. She's extremely creative. She's able to master the nuances of the finances of technology. She has, she's not experience-based as much as she's experiencing everything with us and looking at how the world changes. So, you know, she understands how retail investing is changing, how the retail investing experience is no longer, you know, like just doing analysis. I don't know if you remember, Howard, but I remember when I started out looking at stocks, you'd look in the newspaper and you'd actually find the stock symbol and then it would show you what it traded as. And I think my grandfather gave me a little bit of money, maybe a couple hundred dollars to invest through a brokerage firm that he knew, Janie Montgomery Scott and the broker that he used. Uh, and you'd look it up and how the price changed every day. Today, that not only has changed to you know, the Yahoo Finance screens, but also stock twits, uh, you know, which by the way, uh, you know, I, I have to say, that some of the analysis that I've read on stock twits have been great, have been right on point. Some of it's not so great, but a lot of it has been like, yes, that exactly encapsulates this company. And that's why I'm bullish this company or that company. Uh, and so the fact that it's a social experience, Betsy's really able to understand how the world has really changed and really grasp that. And so uh, I'm just lucky to work with her. And have you met a mother, son, partnership in all your travels? I haven't. You're the first. And and Betsy, I have so much fun talking to her in the few times that we get to chat. You know, I got to get Betsy on the show next. Um, but have you run into that? I, I mean, they exist. I mean, the, the only thing I can think of is a friend of mine owns a hotel in Miami and her son manages it. Okay. That's different. Yeah, you're right. There's family. I guess that's, yeah, that, that's more like the psycho experiences. I, I can't remember exactly that movie, but then the mother owned the hotel and the son managed it. <laughs> that's not our relationship. <laughs> so no, I, I, I can't think of anybody else in business that I met. It's been, a, you know, well, we, we like being unique. Well, this has been a pleasure. I am so excited to have, uh, been introduced to you by Ryan. Um, you seem to, I mean, your take is, you know, you can't predict the markets, but I feel like you're still very confident in this market evolving for SPACs, right? Like the IPO, do you consider it a threat or just part of the game, the direct listing? What's your opinion on those two as we move forward? I think that there's a lot of roles for IPOs and there's a lot of roles for uh, direct listings. Uh, you know, if you're really going to spend the, the work that I think a direct listing really requires for a company that's like anywhere from $500 million in market cap to like $10 billion, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? You must, you know, it's a lot of work uh, and it's a lot of preparation and it's a lot of handholding. Uh, and it doesn't make it, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. On the IPO side, 
look, if you want to start a process where potentially you're going to have to, you know, sell at a steeper discount than anything you can give to a SPAC sponsor uh, in order to get investors ready to buy, you know, nine months after you start the process or, you know, a month or two after you decide to go public, you can have committed capital for your company. It doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, as a manager, why would you want to go with IPO versus SPAC? Some people do, right? It's still, you know, it's still in vogue. It's a fashion. Uh, and it look, it, it works well. If I had a consumer-focused company, you know, like if I had stock twits, I might take that public via traditional IPO or something that, uh, you know, really resonated with the consumer and everybody knew it. You know, if, I don't know, Chick-fil-A, for instance, if I own Chick-fil-A and I was going to take it public, I'd probably take that public through a IPO, but I might actually take it public through a SPAC also. So for all of the great businesses that are existing in B2B and B2B2C, uh, and some of them that in the future will be, you know, as prevalent, I think, or if we have, you know, 10 EV companies, two of them are going to be the next Toyota and General Motors. Those make a lot more sense to take uh, public through a through a SPAC. So uh, I think the SPAC is here to stay. Like any financial exuberance, we'll have some hangover, and then we'll be back to the real uses of the SPAC and people who understand what they're doing responsibly in terms of taking good companies to the public markets uh, are going to be continue to be doing this. Is that fair? Well, that's a great take. We'll end it there. Uh, thanks so much for spending the time and congrats on just uh, persistently sticking at this. You know, it's hard. I find it hard. Maybe you could just say it's like, like I'm a supposed expert in markets and financial services. And then when it's finally started working for me, I'm like, oh God, get out. Right. Because if I'm successful, no one else successful. And now as I've gotten older, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I know that it's it's crazy, like Rodney Dangerfield, but maybe I know what I'm talking about. Do you ever fight that? It's like, oh, my God, we're so right. We got to get out. Or do you just well, is there anything that you can kind of yeah. teach about that or, or think about that? I think, yeah, you know, like there are two things, you know, first of all, I, I have confidence in you. I mean, you've been a very good early stage and medium stage and late stage investor. So I would have a lot of confidence in you. You know, uh, the thing I always come back to and that, you know, my mom and even my dad always tell me is that intelligence is really for simplifying. And, and why do I say that? I mean, because if you're analyzing, maybe these things are so scary. If you can make them simple and have a couple of simple principles, you know, that, that's what we do. Sometimes you have to, you know, balance them. When I started off, I actually worked with my dad initially. And what he taught me, it was real estate finance. And what he taught me back in the 1990s was that if you can buy a property at a 10% yield and then refinance it and get all, almost all or more than all of your money out, that's a great investment philosophy because then you can go on and do well. It was very simple. You had to bend it. You can't possibly do that today because the yields are nowhere near what they used to be. But if I look at what I've learned from my mom in terms of looking at companies and technology companies, we want to invest in growth companies, not because they're cheaper than another growth company, but because the company that we know, if we look at it, we analyze it, we learn a lot about it, we can see that in anywhere from five to seven years, if we're buying it at $10 a share, it should be producing $5 of cash flow, you know, five to seven years out. 
And ultimately, you know, that's what that's what we're looking for is companies that can grow like that and can take advantage of changes. So it's always scary. Right. I have no confidence in you know my own judgment. The nice thing about working with your mom is not only do you have confidence in her judgment, but she actually makes you feel better about this stuff. So that's a big plus. Uh, but, you know, we, we try to keep things simple. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on this show. And uh, this is my first podcast. And uh, it's been a pleasant experience talking to you. Well, I appreciate that. That's the point. I think what you just said there is what I guess people like the most if they say something nice about the show or my writing is I have a way and everybody, whether it's a documentary, I'm working on a documentary around, you know, my travels or the FinTwit travels. And I'm like, tell it to me like I'm a four-year-old. And there is, you know, this craving to be the smartest person in the room. But the people that explain it to four-year-olds generally are pretty successful. The ability to take something complex and and make it sound simple is is probably still the key to these things. It all boils down to that. So, well, I'm glad you did it. I'm glad we got you on. Next is Betsy, and then maybe we'll get your 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 daughter. I think we'll just go three levels. And um, thanks for coming on. I'll let you go, and that was really fun. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you, and I'm excited to continue our long term friendship together, publicly and privately. Take care. Thanks, Daniel. Take care. Bye-bye. K-Nut. Hey, Howie. Interesting stuff. That's some wisdom there, huh? Yeah. He's got experience with this. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, I love all the, uh, all the anecdotes. So it was different <laughs> and fun. You know, listen, that's who got me down the rabbit hole, him and Adam Bain, talking all about right. SPACs and Chamath. So we are still kind of day one even though the SPAC, as he explains, is a Canadian thing and very much around actually being a conservative type of investment, the yeah. way he explained it, right. it's involved into a growth vehicle. So maybe actually it's becoming a little more risky, which is what people want. They want a little bit more fun and experience of technology. So hopefully people got a lot out of that. Knut, did you learn something? Yes, I always do. In this case, too. All right. Well, we're going to get... Uh, Three generations of Cohen's. We're going to go for three. It'll be our first three generations. And uh, so we've got some work to do and some calls to make. Thanks, everybody. This is Panic with Friends. We talk to investors, entrepreneurs, traders, thought leaders. We're just trying to get a few months ahead of the world. We don't have to be 10 years ahead. And that is the trick to great investing. Don't get too far in front of the curve. Don't fall too far behind. Anyways, uh, you can find us on Spotify or Google and just search my name, Howard Lindzen, or Panic with Friends, and uh, subscribe. Makes it easy. You'll get one podcast alert a week. That's Knut and I, my old friend from ASU in Norway. And uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Knut, thanks. Thank you.